0: Thank you for listening to Dream 10X Radio, where we interview people attempting to live extraordinary lives. Our twofold purpose is to both direct and inspire people bold enough to do the same. Dream 10X. Face your fears. met our next guest through one of our rowing teammates, uh, Jeff Byron at Alexandria Community Rowing. We encouraged each other in the men's 2K meter events at the 2008 Crash Bees in Boston. And then the last time I ran into this guest was at the 2013 Head of the Charles Regatta in Boston, Massachusetts. It happened to be that this was the same year that he and his senior year roommate, Gabe Blanchett at MIT, started Grove Labs. Uh, Grove Labs was a startup company that they set out to solve the problem of supply chain, food supply chain logistics and sustainability through the sale of in-home aquaponics grow systems. He's a 2009 graduate of T.C. Williams High School in Alexandria, Virginia, a 2013 MIT graduate, a TEDx presenter, and co-founder at Grove Labs in Boston, Massachusetts. Please welcome Jamie Byron. Welcome, Jamie.
1: Hey, James. Thanks for having me here. It's great
0: to have you on, man. Long time no see. How how you been doing?
1: Um, I'm doing pretty good. I'm kind of settling into, into life here on the homestead and um, figuring out my niche in my, in my new business here. And uh, yeah, just trying to, trying to kind of build community and build things here on the farm and on other farm properties and really um, just get my new life on track.
0: Well, great. I'd love to hear more about the status quo today, but uh, take us back to your T.C. Williams high school days. And um, after you graduated T.C. Williams, what were you thinking of uh, doing with your life at that point?
1: Um, so when I was at T.C., I mean, rowing rowing was a big a big focus. I mean, it was what pretty much all my energy went towards. And I think that was, that was due to a couple of things. I mean, one, that was... There's just such a great community around, around rowing at our school. Um, you had the, the men's teams and the women's teams together in one place. You had all the coaches, all the parents. Um, we had that, that place, that boathouse where we kind of all uh, gathered every day, sometimes twice a day. And so that was kind of my community. And, um, so I really put all my heart and soul into, into rowing. And, um, and then my side interests are really physics and engineering and Um, particularly when it came to climate change what uh, you know what we could build what technology we could build to alleviate the impacts of climate change and sequester carbon Um, and I was really focused on on technology at the time and so those two things kind of collided the rowing and the and the technology and engineering Um, when I think the coach reached out to me or or I met him at probably at at head of the Charles or somewhere uh, the MIT freshman coach and and he said hey I, th- I think you could probably row here at mit like you've got you've got the uh the grades and the scores and the interest in engineering huh. and uh you've got the, the scores on the erg and and the record on the water and um and i'd never really consider going to mit never really thought that i was necessarily that caliber of student um really never considered it until i met him and he was like you know you should just try and um and I tried, and and he kind of helped me through the process, and was my mentor in terms of applying and um, doing what I needed to do to to get in. And That's sure awesome. enough, that that spring, um, the letter came back, and I I got into MIT. Wow. Um, yeah. So it kind of came out of the blue, and I mean, people were really surprised because I wasn't I wasn't like a great student. I mean, I was in some of the top classes, but you know, I definitely wasn't the top of the top. I probably graduated 30 or. Or 40 in our class of, you know, 700, and um, the people were kind of, kind of awestruck. Like, wait, he got <laughs> in there. What?
2: <laughs>
1: but, uh, yeah. So that's kind of what, what started me on this journey, and and eventually led to to founding Grove Labs.
0: That's cool. Who? What was the coach's name there at MIT?
1: Um, his name was Andy. Andy and oh man, I know a lot of Andys they're all <laughs> merging together, yeah, who's <laughs> Andy, who's there for a couple of years and and he's really he was really responsible for growing the program to what it is now I mean he uh, the this is for a lightweight team, um, but he really focused on recruiting and actively recruiting and going out a lot of the other schools, like you know Harvard and Yale and Princeton, you know, they kind of let people come to them because they you know. They had a lot of pride you know they they wouldn't go out to get you unless you're really good. they would just let you come to them. Uh-huh. Andy would go out and, and just find potential, not necessarily the best rowers but find um, find kids that he could train and really he saw a lot of potential in and so um yeah we we catapulted like from my freshman year there um, the, the prior year, I mean, prior several decades the team was was pretty awful like consistently placed last and then our freshman year um one of the early head races i can't remember which one it was on the charles though um we beat i think we beat penn and oh we beat yale at at princeton we beat penn and dartmouth which were you know good good rowing schools Mm -hmm. for lightweight and uh and everyone was like out of the blue like whoa where did how did mit do that and so um and it was really came down to andy just like really getting a lot of good guys who had potential and then kind of training us like we were the underdogs and, and making us hungry for it.
0: Yeah. yeah. What was it like rowing out there on the Charles as a college student?
1: Uh, it was cold and wet and miserable a lot of days.
0: Was it crowded? I imagine uh, it was just completely crowded every morning.
1: It, no, it actually wasn't crowded because we were we were in the basin and okay. so, a lot of our work we did in the basin there by the the, the Mass Ave Bridge. Yeah, um, it's a lot of space we, there. Yeah, when you go upstream, it starts to get a little more crowded. But um, you know, it was fun. I mean, that's that's how you get good at doing the head race stuff. Is
0: the choppy water up there?
1: Yeah, choppy water and passing people and um, yeah.
0: How'd you like Boston?
1: Um, I was, I mean, there are some some benefits to Boston, but I, I was never really a big fan. I really didn't want to go up there. I didn't I didn't apply to any schools in in cities. I always knew that I wanted to be out more in nature and in rural areas. Mm. And the MIT thing just kinda came out of the blue. It definitely wouldn't have been my first choice of places to go to, but it's the only place I got into like all the schools I applied with the exception of UVA. And so it was kind of just where i I had to go so i didn't have any real attraction to boston but i met a lot of great people there um i like it down here better though and uh you know central appalachia yeah west in the mountains there's definitely like a there's a noticeable difference in culture from when you're on the coast in the coastal cities to when Mm. you move west and you start hitting the foothills and there's kind of like a general culture shift at the foothills and then you hit the mountains and there's a an even more distinct distinguishable culture shift. So I've always liked that in Appalachia. And so I'm really glad to be back, back here in in West Virginia and Maryland.
0: Is it the slower pace of life that appeals to you or
1: more rural? It's it's slower. I think it's more community centric. It's, it's generally friendlier. Um, I think people tend to just be a little more open in the mountains and, and open to their neighbors. Um, In the city, I, you know, there's a lot of places where, like, you know, neighbors who lived next to each other for 10 years really didn't know each other at, at all. You know, and there were one or two houses down from each mm. other. They just kind of <laughs> knew each other in passing yeah. in the city. But that's not a thing here. Like, yeah. You, you know. Greater you sense know, of you, community. Yeah. Yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah. What did you major in at MIT?
1: Um, so, I studied uh, aerospace engineering. Um, and the idea there was really I wanted to work on wind turbines. And wind energy, and um, so I kind of, I kind of shifted my focus from, you know, most of the kids were into satellites and rockets and airplanes and helicopters, <laughs> stuff like that, and I was like this weird kid who was into blimps and wind turbines, and um, so I was you were the nerd, the wind turbine nerd. Yeah, we like, oh, yeah. just like the weird guys. Like he likes wind turbines and blimps. Like, <laughs> <laughs> we got rid of blimps at the Hindenburg. Um, but yeah, so those are really my two passions within that was, was uh, lighter than air travel, which I still hmm. think has a, a ton of potential. It's, it's just an incredibly overlooked technology. Interesting. And um, it was the future back in the 20s and 30s. You know, the future was we all would have our, our little RV blimp that we'd take off from our backyard and um, dock with the mothership and go and eat in the restaurant. And we'd just be, be floating over the United States or over the ocean or traveling the world um, you know, in these lighter than air, um, airships. And so, uh, and then the Hindenburg really, um, kind of ruined that one. Um, I mean, that's a whole thing I could get into, but, uh, <laughs> but I, I think it's going to make a comeback at some point. i um, would love to be a part of that.
0: Interesting. I, I've, I've had thought about that thoughts about that as well for beating traffic.
1: Yeah, I mean, imagine just lifting <laughs> right up out of your backyard, yeah. going directly to where you want to go to. You know, maybe there's like a, uh, you know, you can rappel down or something, and your blimp just sits up there over top of your your office. Yeah. You know, all day, and then you go up the elevator, and you're up in your blimp. Like it, it just makes so much sense, and it's way, way, way more efficient than than most rockets. To travel. Yeah, well, jet fuel, airplanes for sure. It's like it's like one tenth the energy of an airplane. Mm. I think it's something like if you go half the speed in in an airship, you go half the speed, you use one tenth of fuel. So to get you know DC to New York is, I don't know what, two hour plane or, or something. Yeah. So to double Rough that way. and take four hours, and you use one tenth of fuel. Um, mm-hmm. And in the meantime, you can walk up. You don't have to be in your you know your seat. You can you know you kind of enjoy the flight. It's a much calmer calmer flight. Um, So I think we'll get there one day, you know, we'll all have our own personal RVs that we'll have parked out on our land and we can go visit each other without any traffic.
0: Hmm. Hey, have you seen, there's a Netflix movie that my wife just turned me on to Cindy. Do you remember the name of it about the the kid in Africa who built a windmill?
2: Oh yeah. The boy who um, built the windmill. (laughs) The boy who harnessed the wind. Yeah. Yeah, But thank you. Yep. Yep. With William Kump Yeah. Yep.
1: Yeah. He was a huge inspiration to me. Really? Yeah, I, th- I think that book came out when I was a junior or senior in in high school, and uh, and I read it, and it was like, whoa, this like this kid built this from scratch, and he's powering like his whole village and charging their cell phones and powering light bulbs, and it was all from just junk. Yeah. It was, yeah, I found that so cool. I th- I think that's mm-hmm. a big reason why why I went into aerospace.
0: Really? That is really interesting. Cause we talked about maybe getting him, try to get him on our podcast as well. <laughs>
1: That'd be awesome. I'd, yeah, I'd be really curious to hear what he's up to. Yeah. yeah.
0: Interesting. All right. Um, so let's see what else was, um, so studied aeronautical engineering at MIT. And then as a senior, you had a roommate, um, Gabe Blanchett and somehow the two of you came up with you hatched a business plan and from there started business so love to hear about this story.
1: Yeah so so Gabe and I were were kind of best friends through um through MIT we met the first day and we just had a lot of shared interests you know adventures going on adventures outdoors and um and doing stuff that had um, environmental impact and also social impact Uh, We're both into just solving problems, you know, a lot of our, a lot of other people at MIT are are into, I mean, there are a lot of people into solving problems, but some people just want a a really good job or want to make a bunch of money or or want to work on very specific um, technologies. Hmm. But there's a subset of people who go to schools like that who really go because they want to change the world for the better. And um, Gabe was one of those, those people, and I saw that from... From early on when I met him, so he was really inspiring to me. And our senior year, he really took the business route, and so he took a lot of business classes, did some engineering, but was really, you know, everyone knew that Gabe was going to start start a business, start a startup out of college. And um, so we were rooming together our senior year, and I started getting really into um, kind of becoming, uh, uh, I don't know, just not as excited about wind energy anymore because of the dynamics of the large corporations that really control the space Mm. and the fact that um, wind energy is limited by, really by the storage capacity of the grid more so than the design of the turbines. So I I realized that around my senior year and so kind of started to have a shift to where can I make a bigger impact than wind energy. Um, You know, just becoming an engineer works on a specific thing on a wind turbine That's not a huge impact. So I came across the idea that agriculture is really one of the biggest emitters of of greenhouse gases, as well as the biggest um, destroyer of the things that sequester carbon. So the forests and the soils, you know, global agriculture. It's really responsible for the destruction of our planet's ability to sequester carbon, which ecosystems do very well. You know, we talk about carbon sequestration like it's we have to build a technology that will sequester carbon, <laughs> but we already yeah. have the technology. Like it's, it's, it's already it's been ecosystems. built. Ecosystems, it's nature. Yeah. yeah, And the bigger the the bigger the forest, the bigger the trees, mm. the deeper the soils, the more diversity, the more carbon is sequestered in that ecosystem. And currently, we actually don't know the limits of carbon sequestration because sequestration capacity actually, it, it accelerates as the ecosystem matures, as the forest gets bigger. So we, we don't even know where the limits are because we've cut down a lot of our old growth forests. Um, so I kind of saw that and was like, wow, agriculture's got to be the number one kind of leverage point for for addressing climate change. And so really started digging into that, came across um, Permaculture, which is this idea of, of really um, designing ecosystems that produce food, um, rather than looking at, at food as kind of like a manufacturing process or an assembly line, looking mm. at it as, as just another ecosystem, um, but an ecosystem that's really designed from the ground up to produce as much human food as possible. And that led me to, to aquaponics, which is um, this, I guess you call it a technology an technology of uh, where you basically take fish farming which is called aquaculture and um, hydroponics which is a way to grow plants um, without soil which is is quite problematic it's got a, hydroponics has a lot of issues to it um, but when you combine it with the aquaculture and you actually use this waste product from the fish which is their nasty poopy water well that's great fertilizer for the plants so you take these two um, separate industries, these two separate technologies and you combine them and you've just made both of them in order of magnitude more sustainable and efficient. And um, so I kind of came across that and that really that was like the gateway into, uh, into this world for me because it, it had a lot of technology to it. There are a lot of opportunities to automate things and to build machines that, inter- you know, that fed the fish or did, did different things and the lighting was cool to me. And um, that was really the gateway because it merged these two things of uh, technology and ecology mm-hmm. into one really um, concise solution. Um, so I started building these aquaponics systems in our, in our dorm room. It was a uh, fraternity room. It was uh, winter time. It was like January, February. And we had been living with this one op- first aquaponics system for, for you know a couple of weeks and all of a sudden like it's flourishing and there's fish in the fish tank and greens just um just exploding out the top you know lettuces and kales charred and um beans trellised up the window and just growing all these veggies and it it really it was it was life-changing because it um not only were we growing food but it it really changed the whole vibe of our room um you know, outside in Boston is like dead, totally dead in the winter, and then inside our room it felt like a tropical jungle. You'd open the door and be hit with this wave of like um, moist, like fresh-smelling, oxygen-rich air, <laughs> and uh, and you, you noticed it in the social interactions because people started hanging out in our room. Our room became like kind of the center of the house, to some degree, or at least a place, a watering hole where people gathered. Um, it's because I think they're attracted to that greenery and just the life in the room. Um, so, you know, we, we kind of observed this for, for several weeks and we realized one day that like, man, there's, there's a business here. Like we have the opportunity to, to really bring life into people's homes, um, to teach them about ecosystems and about growing food and how to be more self-sufficient um, and to kind of reconnect people with nature through this thing that uh, masquerades as a piece of technology as a product um you know as as a as tech you know high tech but really what it is is it's is it's just technological box surrounding an ecological uh, system kind of cycle yeah. yeah so uh so that's kind of what started it we came up with a business plan and we submitted it to the school um and got into this uh, business accelerator program that the school did in the summer after you graduated and that kind of catapulted us. We got a few connections here and there and, and it um, met the right people and it just kind of blew up. We we're right at the center of like the, the tech bubble, um, the tech investing bubble. We, we hit the wave like right on time there. Um, well,
0: when was that wave according to you?
1: So that would be like, um, so we started 2013 um, that year, that, that winter and then the summer, and then we raised our round, our angel round of, or not angel round, uh, raised the small angel round and raised our seed round of, of about 2 million, I guess the next winter. Or so it like, I think it was January or February, 2014 or March. Um, yeah. So early 2014 and like the VCs were just dumping money at that point, um, Jeez. you know, looking for like, and every week you'd like hear about a new a new V C firm popping up and we were kind of Dave had tons of connections in that space and we were kind of right right at the center of everything that was happening. Wow. Which is exciting.
0: Can uh, you talk about some of your who who your VCs were?
1: Uh yeah, yeah, I'd be happy to. Um it's yeah, I, I guess I wanna finish that thought which Sorry, is it was go exciting. Ahead. Looking back is like it should have been scary. Yeah. <laughs> like, like like clearly it was like to give us two million dollars right off the bat with with very little um just kind of with it just kinda of came out of the blue. I mean it wasn't it wasn't hard to get the first two million. It was harder to raise future rounds, but the first two million was just like, here you go hmm. You know, and we were like, Holy wow, what do we do with this? Yeah. You know? We're just young, we're just out of college. Um so looking back it's like I don't know if that was the right thing for the economy, but it was exciting to be at the middle of it, and we met some really awesome people. And um, not to downplay them, like some of our investors were amazing. Like uh, the Upfront Ventures, they were our lead uh, lead investors, um, Eve, and then later Mark's sister. Um, they they really mentored us through a lot of the business stuff, and Kevin Zhang there. And um, then we had some other kind of high profile investors. Um, Gary, Gary Vaynerchuk's firm and, uh, and Tim Ferriss uh, did a portion of the round through Angel List. Um, so that kind of accelerated things a little bit more, having those names on board. And then a lot of smaller investors who really um, didn't contribute as much money, but contributed a lot of, of advice and really, really led us through it, uh, helped us through the, the process. <laughs>
0: Wow, what an awesome boost right there at the very beginning of a, an idea!
1: Yeah, we were soaring at that time. We, we didn't realize how hard it would be.
0: <laughs> yeah, so talk a little bit about that. What? Uh, how did it get hard?
1: <laughs> well, I think um, I think we we saw head count as like kind of this metric of like how how successful we were, like because you always see that on like TechCrunch articles or whatever, like. I don't know. Head, head count's always a thing, so we we really built our team really fast and hired people full time, and and we quickly grew. You know, after that first round, we might have had four or five people with a couple of people working part time, um, and then that two million came in, and and we grew very quickly in terms of head count. You know, it was very quick to get from six to twelve, and um, and six to twelve is a great number. We were working really well. Um, in the eights nines tens 11s, 12s as a team it and' was, it was easy to to manage and it was, we were very self-organizing it wasn't hierarchical mm-hmm. everyone had their thing going on it was helping other people with their thing and it was uh, very just organic at that phase and i think part of where we where we miscalculated is we kept growing beyond that and soon we were at 17 and it started to get kind of divided up a little bit and um, you know, and and a little more siloed into groups and and kind of cliques forming, and then getting up into the the low 20s, um, very much so, and started to see it's like some politics at play, um, which really which really bothered me, you know, because I liked it when it was small and we were we were very efficient and moving forward, but okay, yeah. uh, doing it small, yeah, and eventually we got up to like I think we had like 28 one summer with um like six six other people interns like 22 full-time and six interns and at that point especially with engineers in boston like we're just burning through money way faster (laughs) than we can than we can raise it or and at this point i don't even know yeah we probably did and we did have some sales from our early adopter product but it wasn't enough to to keep our burn rate going Mm. close so we just had to keep raising money through these rounds and um and eventually, we we kind of, you know, we, we did this kind of big hail mary with our with our last product that we called the Grove ecosystem, and it was it was a success in terms of marketing and customers loved it. It was an awesome product, just absolutely beautiful aquaponic system, um, but it was way overpriced. It, you know, we didn't have product market fit at the price that we could build it for. Um, we over designed it because we wanted to build the best sleekest thing we have like this ap- apple mentality mm. um, rather than like a i don't know a linux mentality or something <laughs> <laughs> and um, i think that was really one of the big problems is that we we made it inaccessible. you know I, I always felt like we had to make something for like under 600 bucks mm. yeah. and we ended up making something that we'd couldn't sell for any less than like $3,000 and that was really just a much smaller market um, and a much more demanding market to to be kind of in that more luxury price point. Right. So uh, I think that was a big part of it and then um, I think, yeah, so we we started cutting down our our numbers, cutting down our headcount, realizing what was coming and we kind of got to a point in the road where it was, It was like, do we keep going down this path and try and make this work and maybe we'll redesign the product and bring the price point down? Or do we make a big pivot um, and actually design or actually build them for schools, which is where we actually were finding a decent market because school systems could actually afford a $3,000 product that had many thousands of dollars worth of value each year in education. Um, and they could raise grant money for it. And we were making sales there, and the teachers loved hmm. the product. And that was really interesting to me was the education. So I really dove headfirst into education. How can we get these in classrooms? And, um, and we kind of, like, let that happen for a while um, as a side project as maybe the thing that might either be a side business or maybe it might be the thing that we pivot to. And I got to the point where I where it was like, man, this is the only thing that's going to work. As um, if we pivot now, we cut everything that's not necessary, and we go all out on schools, and we do this as an educational project um, product. And and it's just the way the politics worked and the people on the team with power. It it just wasn't. We didn't have enough people to to make that decision, and we kept going on our path and spent all of our money basically.
2: Um, mm.
1: So that was kind of where that was kind of where I lost a lot of motivation. Because um, I realized, like, man, I couldn't even advocate. I couldn't make this this pivot happen um, in time. And uh, people didn't necessarily want to hear it, at least the majority of people on the team in positions of power. So it's, yeah, I think, I guess that would be my one regret is not pushing that more and not, you know, really putting everything into shifting it towards education mm-hmm. uh, earlier. Because I think we'd still be going and there'd be, There'd be growth ecosystems in schools across the country um, (laughs) all over, and there'd be tons of kids who'd be learning about nature and agriculture in this small little microcosm of an agricultural ecosystem.
2: So it's interesting you talk about education. So I wrote my dissertation on what is the nature of aesthetic experience in prolonged extreme natural environments, and what implication does this have on learning um, their worldview, lifestyle, and uh, do their behaviors end up reflecting the ego consciousness? So what I found out was actually Whoa. much bigger than that. And my entire chapter four is your TED Talk. So oh, yeah. I watched it and geeked out, obviously, and oh, realized awesome. I didn't have to write a dissertation. I could have just watched your TED Talk. Yeah,
1: you're just on your own <laughs> TED Talk.
2: Yeah, exactly.
1: (laughs) Wow, that's awesome.
2: Yeah, it was really, really cool. So, one of the things I found was that people who had been in this situation and finally got away from, okay, so finally got away from all of this aesthetic input. So, we have these lights that are constantly in our eyes and we have these noises all around us. And in extreme natural environments, we are able to experience all of our senses versus in society where we block it. Um, So it's pretty cool. And those people who had that experience were able to reconnect to nature in a totally different way. And when they came back to society, the majority of them said, I want to educate others on this experience. So they changed their careers and took jobs in schools and uh, wow. d- d- are really focused on their children and experiencing them. So it was really cool to see your TED Talk. Um, so with that, yeah, tell me a yeah, little bit about cool. uh, what led you to do the TED Talk and really figure out that systems thinking, learning with nature. And do you have any impetus to, because you talked about education, so clearly you have a passion for it. Do you have any impetus to, to start working with others and educating them in natural environments?
1: Yeah, Oh, that's really cool, that, that connection. Uh, yeah, I feel like I mean, we've probably both experienced this through our, through our work, but like when you basically like there's something that being immersed in nature does to, to how you think. I, I think it, it feels like it, you have more interconnections between areas of your brain because you start to see parallels in, in everything, you know, in, in the way that a tree grows, the parallel with the way that the water flows. And the parallel with the way that the plumbing system works in your house, and like and the rocks and the fissures in the rocks, and the way that the butterfly you know flies, and it's just like you start to to put a lot of stuff together. And really, what it is is like it's your brain seeing like it's your brain basically learning how systems work, like just systems in general, any system, because you're seeing lots of different systems uh working in their nested system. So, like the tree is a system, and I could observe that. But then, the the grove of trees is a system, and and uh, you know, and there's so they're nested as well. And um, and so having the you know, I've always been a kid who spent a lot of time in nature, but I didn't really realize make that connection until um, until bringing these ecosystems into schools and seeing the kids start to to point out things that. Was like were kind of breakthrough realizations for them, and sometimes were breakthrough realizations for me. You know, having them point point out cool things that are happening in the aquarium, or the way that plants were growing around each other in the garden bed, or the way that you know the plants in the window are like are curving in a certain way, and that's because the sun is rising in the east, and they're pointing towards that, and then it gets shaded out for half the day, and then it's in the west, so they're like. the the plants are curving around and like seeing this making these types of realizations and seeing kids do that was just like totally mind-blowing to me and I realized that you know this has got to be the foundation of our education system is is just putting kids into nature and not telling them what to learn but seeing what they learn and, and they might come up with some really cool stuff and so um so I, I guess that, I mean, that led to the TED Talk. I honestly can't tell you how that led to the TED Talk, but someone reached out to me and said they liked what we were doing um, in the school space because we were doing, we were selling systems in schools and, um, and posting content about that. And they, they asked me to do a TED Talk at a school, um, which I think was focused on education. And, um, yeah, so I kind of just, you know, I'm not a big public speaker, but, um, I saw it as an opportunity to kind of share share my story of of how i kind of went through that nature immersion in my childhood and um, how that influenced me to get to get to where i was and how i think a lot of kids can can have that and it's actually a it's actually like a a, a more affordable way to, to to educate kids right like you don't have all this crap that you know in the school like you literally just bring them outside and and you you just look at whatever you know you observe anything. I mean, it could be the plants growing up through the sidewalks. Like there's a thousand things you can learn from just a small microcosm. And um, so yeah, that led me to the TED talk. And I guess moving forward, you know, it, it didn't work out with Grove, but I see I still see that as one of my my core missions is to is to uh, help kids um, basically reconnect with nature so they can learn, um, you know, figure out what's inside of them, you know, by observing what's, what's around them. Um, and that could manifest itself in a school or in summer camps or, um, cool farm and forest homestead that, uh, schools can take field trips to. Um, I don't know exactly how it's going to manifest, but it's definitely in my, my future, um, to, to help kids reconnect with nature and, and learn from that.
0: That's very cool. So, I was I wanted to circle back a little bit and 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 kind of ask you if um uh, starting a business was ever in the cards for you starting college or going through college was that any did you have any vision for your life doing that kind of thing then? And or and do uh, you still have it now or is that
1: <laughs> Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Burned no. up? Oh yeah. No, I've I've never been the type of person who can who can really work for someone else full-time you know that's just not my personality I, i'm not a not a good um full-time employee you know I, i've got to be doing something creative on my own so yeah i think starting a business was always kind of what i was thinking of but not necessarily starting a business just doing my own thing and right. maybe a business would come out of that which um it's kind of where i'm at now like i've always wanted to um to climb i've always liked to climb trees and um i always thought being an arborist would be kind of cool to to be a climbing arborist so um, once grove was over and we and we shut that down and i moved back home to, to shepherdstown area west virginia um i met up with this um this awesome wise hippie tree elder tree climbing elder uh named storm who's kind of um infamous in this area and um and i reached out to him and said hey you know, I'm kind of interested in learning your, your trade. And so he took me on and, you know, I worked as ground crew, um, you know, le- you know, watching him climb. And then, um, within a couple months, he was like, I think you're ready. And so I, uh, he, he taught me how to climb and, um, and go up into to big trees of all types. And, um, and we say we we're giving him haircuts cause we don't, we don't kill trees. Um, we just try and keep them healthy. And that's through improving the soil and through, um, through, through trimming them and keeping them healthy so that people feel safe having them around and, uh, and that the trees kind of stay healthy. So um, I learned that in like about a year. And after about a year, Storm told me, he's like, I think you're ready to do your own thing. So he kind of sent me off and, um, and I started this business doing uh, ecological consulting and tree work and um, ecological landscaping and permaculture design. And so it's, it's not really something I ever thought about that I would start a business doing. It just kind of happened because it was the opportunity and it it merged all these things that I really like. So that's kind of my day to day now is, um, is designing landscapes for people, trimming their trees in a way that's really ecologically uh, beneficial, um, and, uh, building ponds and and swales and terraces and help people bring natives and food crops uh back to their land and um, finding a lot of fulfillment in this work and it's um it's funding my life and my ability to, to be on my own land and it's just it's really fulfilling to help people out with, with their land
0: that's really awesome so um i just want to get a little bit clearer picture on on how Grove closed down what what actually happened there to actually finish it off before you ended up going climbing trees
1: yeah so it was it was a slow slow death a slow controlled descent I would say uh-huh. um we didn't just shut it down we you know we we made some really painful cuts over the course of four months mm. um when we realized that uh, financially it, it just wasn't going to work out and um that was probably the hardest experience in my entire life like really four to six super difficult months and having really hard conversations with people and a lot of a lot of pain mm. for me and for Gabe and and for everyone on the team because mm. um, we had a really kind of tight-knit close team and a really awesome culture and, and we really all loved each other so it's hard to kind of break that up yeah um, and just as we were getting down to like four of us left kind of ready to shut it down. Um, we got this email from a, um, from a a Korean appliance manufacturer, um, a big kind of well-known Korean appliance manufacturer. And they just, the email was, Hey, we like your product. Uh, we want to build something similar. Will you help us design it? And this is like two or three days before we were basically pulling the trigger to to shut everything down. Wow. And um I'm like, okay, that sounds interesting. I was a little bit hesitant cuz I was kind of ready to to, to shut it down.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um but we decided to to go with it and within I don't know, just a couple weeks we were flying out to California to meet with with these uh, executives from the company and within a couple months I think we were flying out to Korea and no kidding. Yeah, there were. I think there were. There were six of us on the team at that point, and four of us went out to Korea and basically ran a whole kind of like cons- we we became a consulting and design business. Huh. Um, and we we worked with them, uh, you know, for like a week at a time, uh, tw- two times over the course of the year. We would fly out a week and then do everything else remote, and we did. a lot of the research and growing in these appliances we did that research in back in boston um, and then we helped them design the user interfaces and a lot of the the forward-facing things as well as the uh as well as the the back end stuff like how you actually grow the plants um, the algorithms for that and the the control systems to irrigate and um, control the climate and all that we really like we helped you know we worked with this team at this huge company and built a product in like the course of i think it was less than a year i think it was like nine months and it's really exciting we we're all getting along um we really liked like them like the team there and in the korean culture and um and then the last time we were in korea um the uh the current president uh got into office and and we were there basically at the height of like the the, the nuclear scare um like the height of tensions between North and South Korea and America mm. was our last trip there and it was like kind of unnerving that that like that we were like, in a place that was like felt like it was on the edge of war and you kind of feel it in the air there that everyone was nervous and it was partially like the fault of our own country and our country's leadership and that I think that left a kind of a sour taste in the South Korean leaderships in their, in their minds for, for America. Um, and we were working so well with them and, you know, we were ready to renew our contract and keep going on the next version of the product. And one day they reached out to us and said, Hey, we, you know, we, we've been talking with our, our exec- top executives and they just, don't think they don't want to take the risk of partnering with an American company at Ugh, this point. Man. They're like, they're like, we would love to work with you guys. Like we would love to keep this going, but you know, it's coming from the top. that they don't want to, they don't want to keep this going. And so, um, it came out of the blue. So at that point we realized, you know, this, this is it. Like, you know, we tried it. We had a lot of fun in Korea, kind of one last hurrah and, uh, and it came back and, and shut it down.
0: What what year was that? Was that this year or last year?
1: Oh, that was tw- sometime 2018. Oh, okay. When was the when The election was 2016.
0: I don't I don't remember. I
2: don't
1: even remember. It, it yeah, was it was 2016. When, yeah, so it probably yeah, so we were probably doing that work through 2017 and then early 2018 or late 20, 2017 that kind of fell apart. Mm. Um but it was like a, um, it was a fun last hurrah and we and we learned a lot and got to experience a really different culture and, and actually culture is very connected with nature, which is really cool to see. Hmm. Um, so they it really, the product really worked for them because they have this, this culture, of, I don't know, just having more respect for their life on earth, I think, than most, most Western culture does. And so... They just found it really cool that you could grow all these different plants and plants that are medicinal and plants that you can make teas out of and kind of have a relationship with plants in your tiny soul, soul apartment. Um, so, yeah, really, really grateful for that opportunity to work with, with those guys. Mm-hmm. Um, there, yeah, go ahead.
0: So when did you ultimately shut down the company? Was that 2018?
1: Uh, that's a good question. It's it's all kind of blending together, but <laughs> yeah, probably 2018, or maybe it's 2017.
0: Yeah. Uh, do you ever feel like maybe you shut it down too early? Because I'm like, well, what if you, what if you made made it so you could grow pot in your house, or what if you, you know, COVID nineteen had, and everybody wants their own, to grow their own food locally now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what
1: totally. if we had a
0: grove system now?
1: Totally. Yeah. I I think we could have pulled it through to some degree, but it's like at that point, it's just timing. well, none of our investors wanted to put anything else in. Yeah. So they were kind of burnt out, the the bubble was kind of, the VC investment bubble was kind of popping to some degree and they were starting to be a lot more careful with where they were putting their money at and we just didn't fit the bill. So it wasn't like we could have raised money. So basically, we're back to bootstrapping. Yeah, and it's like, oh, well, if we're gonna bootstrap, like we might as well shut this down and do something different. Hmm. Um, and if we're gonna shut it down and do something different, we still have this non-compete clause with with the current with the past company. So it was like, well, we gotta basically, uh, yeah, we, we basically kind of okay. have no other choice. I mean, yeah. so much of the equity was eaten up that it's like it makes no point to bootstrap a company that's already entirely owned by other people you know we don't have much more stake left in the thing
2: wow um, and some debt
1: so it's like we we just can't make it happen anymore yeah and um and we were all burnt out at that point too because we ever needed a break and a shift um so it it was ultimately a good thing it was painful to go through but um coming out the other side it it just i think it felt a lot better for everyone
0: Mm hmm Let's talk a little bit about permaculture. We we uh, texted you, uh, I forget, it, maybe two years ago about t- telling you about some land we bought down in southern Virginia and how it had been clear cut by the lumber companies, and uh, the soil's really poor and uh, a lot of soil erosion. And but we have big dreams for the place. We want to. <laughs> We want to bring it back to, you know, it's former natural beauty. Uh, we, we, we experiment, we plant all kinds of different trees. We've planted London plane trees and mm. cedar and uh, what else have we planted, Cindy? There's so many different things we're experimenting with. We've got a little apple orchard. We're trying to keep going. Cool. Hasn't done really well.
2: I uh, we did plums and apples and pecans and aspens. And as you said, planes and, Nice. And pines, everything.
1: Wow, that you've planted just since you first reached out to me? Oh,
2: oh yeah. yeah. Whoa, that's
1: awesome.
0: Not everything what's, is working though. So yeah, it's just really, kind
1: of. What's really thriving? I'm curious.
0: The uh, London Plains have done really well, surprisingly. Yeah. Um,
1: it's basically a sycamore.
0: Yeah. It's yeah. A
1: hybrid sycamore. Right. So is that area kind of wet where they're planted?
0: um it is kind of on a yeah it's a, a lower area of the land where so there's a quite a bit of runoff down there
2: I have that virginia clay yep That red and clay. sand
0: a lot of sandy yeah. loamy soil
2: the virginia That's, rosebud is doing really well too right we planted three two or three of those and they're they're taken off as well uh, the red, red buds the yeah. red buds yes
1: yeah yeah they're they're pretty good um like early pioneer species i see them popping up in people's gardens everywhere um Oh, that's really cool. So, okay. So what's your dream for for the land? i mean, turn it back on you. What's your dream? What's your vision for this land?
0: Um, Well, we want lots of trees. There's no shade there at all right now. Um, A lot of the loblolly and Virginia pine were, I don't know if they planted them after they cut everything down or if those are just trees popping up from the ones that were cut down. I'm not sure, but there's tons of pine that are popping up. So we're going to have a lot of pine there. Um, Pretty tall pine in the number of years. That's good. Um, I wanted to build, um, uh, not not have a monoculture of just pine, but, you know, a whole bunch of different species growing in there. Uh, You know, a lot of hardwoods and fruit trees and that kind of thing. Want to have some pastures with lots of green grass because we want to have maybe a cow or two and some goats and Mm -hmm. various types of animals. Horses. Horses, of course. Yeah. Um, yeah. We'd love to have a vineyard, plant a vineyard in there.
1: Cool. So, yeah. so uh, a forest section, a pasture section and vineyard slash orchard. Yeah. Um, cool. Yeah. I mean, some thoughts off the top of my head is like, uh, I mean, those pine trees, the lolly and Virginia pines, like they're a great kind of pioneer species. They come in that really crappy degraded soil and they create shade and they, they keep keep humidity and they um acidify the soil a little bit to lead to other species of hardwoods so like if you've got those popping up you know once they get uh i don't know 12 to, to 20 feet you can really start planting your hardwoods in between them you know your, your hickory nuts and your pecans and um your oaks chestnut elms like you could plant all that in and Um, you know, if you're really trying to produce food, like the nut trees are, are something I've been really into the pecans, our hickories, we've got uh, six or seven native hickory trees. And honestly, the shagbark and shellbark hickory trees, which are native, are the best tasting nut I've ever had my entire life.
0: I've never even heard of that.
1: It's, it's, um, I'm someone who really likes, likes walnuts and pecans even more. And they're kind of in between, but they add a whole different element. They're just really this savory, nutty, um, fatty nut that has that's almost a little bit sweet and um, I think is better than a, than a good pecan. Hmm. Um, so that's the, the shell bark. I think the shell bark is the larger one, so that's probably the one you want to plant. And there's also hybrids between the, the pecans and the hickories because they're closely related. You can get a hickon, which is a hybrid that kind of produces a, a thinner-shelled hickory nut um that's easier to crack and process um but yeah i mean like you can grow something on on the order of like in 30 years you can grow like 10 times the amount of calories per acre um using nut trees compared to an annual crop like corn or wheat or soy Hmm. so you get like 10 times the amount of calories in like 30 30 years um from that same acre interesting Um, and in like 100 years you're producing like hundred, like a hundred times the calories from these big, massive nut trees. So really, like we're looking at sustainability of, of using our land for agriculture. Like nut trees um, with fruit in the understory is really, uh, is really like the way to maximize what we can get off the land. Love that. Uh, yeah, corn, wheat, and soy really does not make sense anymore. Like we've hit the limit of of that making sense, and we drastically need to divest from these uh, destructive annual crops. Whether they're no-till or not, like, they just don't make any sense anymore. So we need to to shift that land that's being planted in the same crop or rotated through annuals every year and start planting chestnuts, uh, hazelnuts, hickory nuts, pecans, walnuts, black walnuts, um, all the nuts as well as, um, you know, fruits uh, that are really productive like uh, mulberries and um and persimmon and and pawpaws and underspilling um we can just produce so much more food and have so much more abundance if we kind of rethink how we how we plant our land and and have the patience to wait it out i was gonna say 15 years to have a nut grove yeah
0: it's a long-term play versus a seasonal you know return yeah exactly. which is another reason i love that
1: yeah (laughs) and there are ways to do it like um you know, your nut trees are actually, you know, the, if you have a deer problem, like a deer can, can really eat a lot of your trees and you get started. So you hmm. know, it makes a lot of sense, sense to actually plant, um, you know, follow what nature does. Like you plant brambles first. So you plant your blackberries, raspberries, uh, black raspberries, loganberries, wineberries, all that stuff. Um, plant a couple rows of that, or plant patches, and then plant your nut trees right in the middle of that, and that's like the natural defense that's that these good. trees have from from uh, your deer, or even your goats, if you want to graze goats or or cows or sheep in that area. And so you can get, um, if you do it smartly, you can get. Harvests from year one, you know, uh, plant your sunflowers year one, and they really help improve the soil or, or hemp. Mm. And while you know you harvest that and you use that all that biomass to mulch the land and improve it, mm. um, maybe you graze graze some some goats through there after you've harvested um, to really knock it all down, and then um, then that fall plant your your blackberries, raspberries, and your rose along with black locusts, um, which will be your future fence posts, as well as a lot of, uh, fodder for your, for your goats and your, your horses, because they can eat the black locusts. It's like a tree alfalfa and, um, you know, and you kind of just follow the natural succession that leads eventually to your, your smaller fruit trees. And you get, you know, 15 years, 30 years out of your apples. Um, and then your, your nut trees start to to take over and they become a dominant species. Mm. Um, so yeah, really following like nature's natural progression, uh, the ecological succession.
0: Love that. Do you help people put together long-term plans for their land like that?
1: Yeah, I've been I've been dabbling in it for a while and um, got a couple opportunities recently to to really start to do that more. And that's that's really where I want to be at is uh, managing my own land long-term um, like that, but also helping other people come up with the plans and. And uh, and make it happen on their land, because mm-hmm. um, yeah, if we can, you know, if 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 I can do it on my own land, and I can uh, directly directly teach ten people, and then share the idea with a hundred people, and then imagine uh, you with your land once you're five years into it, and you're really learning, and you can do the same, help ten people directly, and share the idea with a hundred people. I mean that's just totally exponential. And Changing the world. Yeah, in three decades we've, you know, made a gigantic impact. Hmm. Um, so yeah, that's kind of how I'm thinking. It's like the uh, teach a man to fish. Yeah. Thing.
0: Oh man, that's inspirational. Love that.
1: I'd be glad to help. <laughs> you, you guys want to want to brainstorm ideas? Uh, let's do it.
0: Talk about a little bit real quick about um, uh, water. Uh, you, you mentioned Sepp Holzer to us and he's a big water guy in terms of using that to bring back the soil and the life of an ecosystem.
1: Yeah. Um, the thing that really got me going on this was um, I was in, in high school I think I was a sophomore and uh, my mom took a trip to, to, to uh, Switzerland where, where she had always wanted to go and I decided to, um, to give her a Mother's Day present. She was gone for two weeks um, so we had always talked about having frog ponds in our yard because we both love frogs. And so I, I dug her a frog pond um, while she was gone and built a waterfall out of a bunch of stones we had in the yard. I was lined with rubber and had a couple of tears. And um, and then I surrounded it with slate and planted some plants here on the outside. And when she got back, it was like, it was done. the <laughs> so yard was transformed. But the real transformation was over the next um the next several months to a year where we saw this um this water source in our yard like totally transformed our yard in multiple dimensions the wildlife the wildlife um was more than we had ever seen we started to see larger and larger animals more bugs um frogs foxes raccoons rabbits like tons of different birds started to come over the first few years um, and then we also, like psychologically, we were really attracted to the sound of the water trickling and, and the water there, and we started spending a lot more time in the yard, and that led to us planting a food forest because we were out in the yard more and starting to dream about what it would become. And it really started with this pond. Like this, this water, this water was like the catalyst to all this change. And now my mom's yard is is totally. A food forest. We're like, man, we're probably almost a decade into really transforming your yard, and it's it is just so cool back there. Those kiwis and apricots and berries and tons of veggies and um, all these weeds that we later learned were medicinal and edible um, that we let go wild, and now we find to be totally beautiful. Um, and the pond is still going, I've renovated it so that we've, we've made it larger and now it's like a, a hot tub except it's a cold tub so you can get in it and cool off in the summer. <laughs> and, uh, so it really started with water. So I think from that experience, um, that's what really attracted me to Seth Holzer's work where, you know, he's, he's got like 40 ponds on his, um, on his alpine farm and he's on a really steep slope and the ponds are at different levels and he has all these terraces and... They really they do a couple things they passively um, they passively irrigate the soil around them because the soil that goes you know from the pond bank up into the garden beds into the crop fields uh, acts as a wick and it brings water up there um, it increases the humidity around um, which in turn uh, lengthens the growing season because um, humid air can, can hold on to more heat um, also the the ponds themselves become solar collectors so they warm it up so he's growing like tomatoes in way up in the Alps uh, in a place where you shouldn't really be able to do that. Um, and it's because of the way he's transformed the land, uh, primarily with ponds. Um, and he's also getting energy off them. I think he runs uh, several hydro turbines, his animals drink out of the pond. Um, so I think that's really, that's really a place to start when you, when you get some land, is figure out where the water already is. And if it's not already there, or if it is already there and you just think there could be more water, um, dig that pond or those swales or create a vernal pool. Mm. Um I'm actually looking at our duck pen to my right here. And I just set set a pond in. Um set it in. We got our ducks like several weeks ago and we had just a kitty pool for them. Um, but I realized they need something more substantial, so I put this in like week and a half ago maybe and i'm cleaning it out today i've got a sump pump in there and i pump the dirty water out into the garden beds it's fertilizer and refill it and there's a frog that's already moved into the pond so it's uh it's already attracting life wow Uh, yeah have you guys thought about where the pond's going on your land
0: we have we um talked to um i forget what you call it the the virginia tech um they have people associated with Virginia Tech that help farmers with advice and stuff like that. We talked to one of them, and she said there's quite a lot of things you need to consider with putting in a pond. Um, something like that. We we would have to talk to the Army Corps of Engineers and stuff like that. So we were kind of, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I guess West Virginia is different than Virginia in terms yeah. of that stuff.
1: And there are limits. like You can't just build a gigantic pond. But yeah, uh, but you can put. There are certain limits you can put. I don't know. it Probably varies county to county. But you can put in a pond, and a lot of times you can just do it anyway. The, the real danger is you don't want to put it in a in an area that's already a wetland, because that's a big no-no federally. Oh yeah. Um, because of the wetland setback rules. Um, but I know a lot of people put in put in small ponds. And it's, it's fun and and you can always expand it. Right. So like you get the backhoe for the weekend and you just basically just figure out, I mean, first is sighting. And second is, is figure out the layout and then, you know, play around with the backhoe for the weekend. It might not work right off the bat, but you'll see where the water runs into it. Um, And, you know, you want to seal it, which um, in Virginia with clay is really easy to do. If you got sandy soils, it might not be as easy. If you got a clay layer, it's pretty easy, but yeah, I mean, there's some there's some key things for designing them. Um, but if you keep it small, it's it's totally doable. And I think it's um, if it is illegal, I think it's an act of civil disobedience that needs to happen because <laughs> we need to collect as much water on our land as possible. Um, you know, because it's all running downstream, and we sure as hell don't make good use of it because um, we're polluting it. You know, at, at every turn in the in the river and out into the ocean. So the more that we can keep on, on landowners' land um, to help out their ecosystems, the, the better ecologically. Um, so it's like, and that's something Seth Holzer talks about. He's gotten into troubles with his ponds, and he just, he just, fought the bureaucracy for years, and uh, and continuously wins because he just has really good cases for ecological um, benefits, and he's luckily in a country that. Um, that puts a lot of emphasis on on environmental issues, so he can always make a good case. Like what I'm doing is is the best for everyone, and they let him eventually do his thing. Mm. Um, so I think that's that's a fight that well, it's not a fight we have to take up. You know, I think there's a lot of stuff that we can get around and just do it. And that's kind of the culture here in West Virginia. It's like just do it. Like it's a free country. Yeah. If you're doing the right thing, just do it. And if they come after you, like we're all gonna going to come together and then tell them that, that, no, you can't, you can't come after this farmer for doing the right thing. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, th- I think there'll be more of that, you know, as, as more people get into permaculture and this type of stuff, because a lot of the, the regulations and the bureaucracy is totally backwards, um, but it's stuff that we need to change. And I think we changed it by just just starting to do the right thing and taking it one step at a time. Mm.
2: I totally agree and yes I think we need to build a pond and just not say anything that will mm-hmm. just magically happen so we do actually have yeah. <laughs> we do have one more question for you and so what I hear what I've heard this whole conversation is you have an extreme eco consciousness and passion for nature and passion for uh, making sure that we're really good keepers of the earth and really looking forward. Uh, thinking. And so what that comes out in is a job and your future, you're still kind of working through some of those things, but everything seems to correlate back to that. Now, when you're looking or when you're talking to kids or college kids, high school kids, how would you help them? What advice would you give them to help find that one passion that would drive that drive everything that they do?
1: Mm. Um, That's a really good question. I think it's, um, I've learned over the years, and I'm still really trying to practice this, but uh, it's that saying, uh, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. There's um, like this whole strategy that one of my mentors, uh, Mark Moray, who's really a fantastic leader, um, and has helped me in, in developing my leadership capabilities Uh, he talks about the the art of questioning and he's like, you can make way, way more progress with someone um, helping them achieve what their potential by asking them the right questions. um, than you can by, by telling them what you observe about them. You know, I may see, I may see that you're passionate about this thing. You don't realize it, but me telling you that has the potential to push you away or you might just not, might just not connect with you. But if I, can ask the right questions, you can you can come to the, the solutions that, that are already inside of you. So I guess I'd I'd start with that, where I think everyone, at least most people, already have that passion inside of them, and they've probably suppressed it to some degree because of expectations from their from their parents or their community or their, or their culture, or um, or trauma from, from their childhood. And so it's already in everyone, and it's just a matter of opening that up and you know it's we just gotta connect with connect with everyone around us and and help ask the questions to people that help them them realize what what steps they need to take to fulfill their their path and uh, so it's, a, it's kind of a vague general very general answer but i think it's just so specific um to the person and and uh i I don't know i'm i'm much more into the idea of of helping people one-on-one than than doing than broad messaging you know as as good as broad messaging is i've learned a ton from podcasts like this and from ted talks um you can inspire people that way but you can make a lot more progress i think just meeting that kid one-on-one and and just seeing what they're about and um and helping them through that and if i can just inspire one kid to change the world in person um i think i i think i made made a you know i fulfilled my path um so yeah i don't know if that answers the question but i'm gonna leave it there
2: yeah, it totally answers the question. That's brilliant. So what I heard you saying was like really kind of individualize and coach that one person to help them ask the powerful questions to help them find what they want to do and who they are.
1: Yeah be, yeah. be that mentor that's asking the questions that they're not getting asked from anyone else.
2: That's fantastic.
0: And you've definitely inspired me. So.
1: Cool. <laughs> that's awesome. I'm inspired by you guys being inspired about your land.
0: We're all inspired.
1: It's like you've planted more trees than I have, man. I got to catch up.
0: We we probably killed more trees than you planted.
1: Yeah, yeah maybe. I mean, it's a start. It's still, it's still biomass on the land. Yeah.
0: yeah that's
1: right. Fungal food.
0: Yeah. Well, hey, man, it's been a pleasure having you on here. Thank you so much for your time. Um, yeah. Thanks for the inspiration. It's so good to hear about what you've done since high school and MIT it's good catching up with you. Please tell your dad I said hi, and I miss seeing you guys on the water.
1: Yeah, likewise. I'm, I'm really glad to reconnect with you guys and uh, excited
2: to, to see your land one day.
0: Yeah, definitely. We're going to keep in touch on that.